Hello, and welcome to podcast Story and Fiction, produced by StoryandLiteraryFiction.com, that presents 31 original award-winning short stories and five novels by the notable author William H. Coles, creator of the website StoryandLiteraryFiction.com. This is the first of four podcasts for the novel Tour of Duty. As a fiction novel, it is a dramatic, romantic thriller with strong characterization, written with literary style, and is historically accurate for Americans serving in France during the threat of the nuclear Cold War. The novel is in five parts with 27 chapters. So let's start with episode one. I'm your host, Bill Coles. Thanks for listening. Tour of Duty by William H. Coles Part 1 In the 1960s, the Cuban Missile Crisis and escalation of the Vietnam conflict intensified the fears of the free world. The U.S. military geared up for the worst and thousands of young men were drafted into active military duty. Miles Ballard was a doctor in training and, when drafted, chose the Berry Plan option for physicians, which would delay deployment until completion of a medical degree. Ballard finished his internship and was inducted to serve in the U.S. Air Force in 1960. Chapter 1 Arrival 1960 France Dense layers of gray clouds steeped with damp drifted to the east in the French sky over Paris. Miles Ballard lugged two brown leather suitcases and a backpack from baggage claim into the terminal at Orly International Airport. A woman in a flower-patterned, tea-colored dress cinched with a red-braided cord belt at the waist held up a cardboard packing box lid with Captain Ballard hand-printed in block letters. Miles approached her. Are you Captain Ballard? she asked. Miles nodded. Welcome, she said. I'm Ingrid from the base travel office. He liked her look, about five feet, six inches, and waved light brown hair that shimmered with a hint of gold. It touched her shoulders and accented the blue-green of her eyes, which fixated rather than roamed. Her thin lips formed a kind smile that was sincere, if not attenuated. She seemed vulnerable in some way. She moved to pick up one of his bags, I'll do that, he insisted. She looked athletic. But she was a woman, and he didn't feel right about her carrying his gear. Where can I find the train to Chateauroux? he asked. I have a military car and driver waiting, she said. You sure? I mean, I can take the train. That's my job. Grab your bags and get in the car. Something about her look and personality made Miles feel better about missing his first French train ride he imagined with pleasure on his flight from LaGuardia. A disheveled man wearing coveralls and a plaid wool shirt, his coal-black hair streaked with gray approached. Couchon, he snarled and spat near Miles's feet. Miles turned to face him. Come on, Ingrid said urgently. What does that word mean? Ignore him. No, what does it mean? It means pig. Derogatory? 
Very. It's your uniform. I'm required to wear a uniform while traveling in public. Well, I know that. But don't pick a fight on your arrival in France. Keep walking and don't look back. They exited and she led him toward a military gray-green sedan waiting at the curb. A uniformed airman driver behind the wheel. Why was he so angry? Miles asked. Well... You remind him it was American soldiers who died to win the war on Normandy Beach. A lot of nationalities died, but he doesn't like Americans' conceit about it. And he really doesn't like anyone not French. Well, I just wanted to talk to him. That's not recommended. Just not right for the situation. Besides, don't pick fights with someone eight inches taller than you. But if you treat people with civility, they're less hostile, Miles said. Well, that's naive. He really doesn't like you, she said. Uh, you don't like me either, do you? Well, I haven't known you long enough, she smiled slightly. You think I'm arrogant. All American military men are arrogant. So why are you working for them? My husband's a doctor at the base. We could use the money. She must know I'll be a doctor at the base, Miles thought. He's a doctor. I assume you married him for his money, he smiled. Smartass. She jabbed his arm in jest with her closed fist. I know you're a doctor, and I guarantee you I wouldn't marry you for your salary. Oh, that hurt, he said. Your callow feelings? My vulnerable soul. Exhausted, he slept on the two-and-a-half-hour drive to Chateauroux Airbase. Chapter 2, Induction, 1960, U.S. Air Station, Chateauroux, France. On the first day after arrival, Miles signed documents, listened to tape-recorded instructions on military procedures, received a health examination, and was welcomed to the Air Force by a first officer of personnel with a cup of coffee. At the end of the day, he received a note from the hospital adjutant, Emile Macron, to meet the hospital commander, Colonel Barney Springer, at 1800 hours in the officer's club bar. Springer arrived 45 minutes late and offered no apology. He told Miles to sit next to him and held up an index finger to signal the bartender. Bring him a Blanton single barrel, Springer said. My favorite, he noted to Miles. Make that a double straight up for me, he said to the bartender. I prefer water, no ice, please, Miles said to the bartender. That's ridiculous, Springer snapped. That's handmade Kentucky bourbon, the best of the best. I don't drink. On the rocks for him, Springer insisted to the bartender. I prefer just water, Miles insisted, ignoring Springer's stern stare. Springer looked from the bartender to Miles. You don't start your tour of duty here in France with water. Not on my watch, he said. You a teetotaler? I've been on and off call for years. An alcoholic drink never occurs to me, really. Eventually, I want to be a surgeon. Goddamn, boy. We got to lighten you up a bit. A sincere rouge, then, Springer said to the bartender, who stood waiting as if this happened often. I'll have a Coke, please, Miles said. The bartender hesitated, now standing ramrod straight waiting for instructions from his superior. 
Springer shook his head. That won't do, he said. Just a wine for him, then, he said to the bartender. The drinks were served with salted peanuts in an unadorned press-glass dish on a paper napkin. When do I start seeing patients, Miles asked. When you complete payroll and accounting, Springer replied. Then get your quarters ready. You got your uniforms? I've got one from basic training. Get more. Where do I get uniforms? Sarge knows. They're issued for officers, and any tailored alterations are at your own expense. So check with Pringle about your clothing allowance. Are patients being scheduled? They'll start scheduling new patients next week. Until you build a following, you get walk-ins and routine checkups and emergencies and nonspecific referrals, and Pringle will put you on the call schedule. How often? About once every two weeks. The waiter approached. Dinner, sir, he asked Springer. Just the drinks, Springer replied. As the waiter moved away, Springer confidentially leaned towards Miles. It's all essentially free here. A few non-free charges get deducted from a doctor's pay before taxes, he grinned. Commission officers got advantages. Miles stayed quiet. And you've got triage evaluation on Wednesday, Springer said. What is that? Well, it takes three hours, and they got people commandeered to play victims with made-up wounds lying around in the dirt. Victims of a plane crash, a few dead people. You make a diagnosis to preserve life on the spot and direct transfer to the nearest appropriate facility for treatment. You'll be graded. You don't pass. You retake until you do. Uh, where do I learn? It's triage. You know what triage is? Miles was irritated. I know what triage is. Sir, said Springer. What? Springer frowned. It's, I know what triage is, sir. You get it? But what does triage expect of me? Sir, damn it. Sir? Sergeant tell you, there's a manual. Aggravated Springer stood up abruptly and pointed to Miles's untouched glass of wine. Hey, suck it up, Ballard. You got a lot to learn. Suck it up? Miles asked. Sir. Drink it, man. Damn it, drink it. Miles took a sip. Springer pursed his lips as if Miles' reluctance debased him. Command is hung up on triage. They're scared shitless we'll all die in a nuclear attack. Springer grimaced, glancing over the restaurant crowd. A nuclear attack, not a comforting thought, Miles thought. Ah, thank you, sir. Springer waved a dismissal to the bartender. Follow me, he said to Miles. I'll introduce you to some cool dudes that can take care of anything you need. Then I gotta go. Two days later, a military school bus shuttled Miles to the acre-and-a-half field test site. The fence enclosure was draped with opaque canvas panels. Forty-plus people with simulated injuries lay scattered over foliage and scrubby grass. An airman struck a brass gong to start the exercise. An observer and medical assistant accompanied Miles into the enclosure. 
The victims had fairly realistic fake wounds created with collages of plaster and plastics, molded rubber and red fluids. Some had exposed bones, others had chest wounds that when the victim pumped air through a tube from a bulb in the hand suggested a punctured lung. The air hung heavy with sham moans and cries for help. Miles evaluated mental state, status of the airway, bleeding, and shock, and dictated life-saving measures to a nurse. An assistant recorded vital signs and personal data. Throughout the exercise, Miles tagged each victim with a cloth rag around the right arm, red for immediate life-saving intervention required, yellow signaling treatment that could be delayed up to four hours, green for the walking injured, white for no treatment required, and black for the deceased. Two and a half hours later, the gong sounded again, signaling an end to the exercise. All victims had been prioritized on the spot or scheduled for transfer. Outside the triage area, Miles asked an observer how he did. I can't say, sir. You must know if I passed. Colonel Springer evaluates the results for hospital staff. Isn't that a conflict of interest? I can't comment, sir. We're observers. We make no judgments, just the facts. Is my evaluation based on quality of care, Miles asked. No, sir, the observer said. I record the accuracy of your diagnosis and the time it takes you to make the decisions. That's what triage is, not care or outcomes. Later that afternoon, Colonel Springer called Miles into the office. Did I pass? Miles asked. Springer shrugged dismissively. Does that mean I passed? Miles asked. Springer nodded almost imperceptibly. Uh, thank you, sir. Miles prepared to leave. And Ballard? Yes, sir. I've assigned you to the general as his personal physician. Really, sir? Am I qualified? It's for you to travel with the general when he asks. You take care of him personally, too, and the family when they need you. They're all healthy. Anyone is qualified. Uh, shouldn't the general choose his own doctor? I've never met him. I told you. Say, sir. Uh, why me, sir? Most doctors don't like him, and you're available. So you're his personal doc. I don't understand. Say, sir, he wants a doctor. He isn't concerned with qualifications, or who you are for that matter. And for Christ's sakes, it's prestige for him. He's got nothing to do with health. Anybody alive, doctor or not, could do it. You're the new man at the bottom of the heap. You're his doctor, his general medical officer. Uh, wouldn't he want a flight surgeon, sir? They're trained to keep people in the cockpit. Exams and checkups. It's for you to do the grubby stuff. What about my practice? The general will only need you three or four days a week. You finally get it? And say, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you, uh, sir. In the hallway away from Springer's door, Emil the adjutant approached Miles with a tenuous smile. How did the triage go? Oh, I passed. Did Springer tell you that you tied with three others for the second highest score recorded in the last three years? Emil smiled widely. No, he didn't seem impressed at all. Well, don't sweat it. 
That's Springer. It's his routine. He wants to debase you, make you worry a little. I don't get it. He doesn't like anyone smarter or better trained than he is. Oh, damn. And I've got to be a general's physician, too? The general has his hand in everyone's cookie jar, but he's not a bad guy, even though he is a serious hypochondriac. Miles shook his head. He couldn't imagine caring for a one-star general. They didn't seem like regular humans. How can I get along with Springer, sir? Yes. Just do the best you can. Everybody's got problems. Oh, thank you, sir. You can relax with me, Ballard. I'm a lieutenant. Most people just call me Pepper. Well, thanks for being straight with me, Miles said. I appreciate it. Chapter 3. A Colleague. 1960. Miles. Two days later, Miles started patient care. He sat behind a gray-painted metal desk in his exam room reading yesterday's International Herald Tribune. A small rectangular window let in a smidgen of morning light that combined with the fluorescent light from overhead to give the room a chalk-white glare. He only had one patient scheduled for mid-morning. After a knock, a short, stocky doctor entered so quickly Miles had no time to respond to the intrusion. Hey, you got a minute, the doctor asked. He crossed over to the desk, shook Miles's hand, and, uninvited, pulled up a straight-backed metal chair to sit to the side of the desk close to Miles. Curly black hair covered his ears and straggled down to his eyebrows. A brown stain streaked his Air Force-issued dark tie was not sagged. His scuffed and scarred black shoes lacked any shine, and his dark brown eyes and ephemeral smile betrayed both irreverence and irony. Miles introduced himself. Miles Bellard. Oliver Stern here, welcome to Europe in the Cold War. He looks like a dissident, Miles thought. But he only said, oh, What's up? I need a friend, Oliver replied. Miles' interest was piqued by this disheveled doctor now. He smiled inwardly. No problem. I haven't made a friend since I arrived. you got no competition. I'm here to tell you, this place drives me berserk, Oliver said, and it's alarmingly friendless. You'll be insane in six months. Miles tenaciously smiled outwardly this time. You trained in Boston, Oliver continued. Top of the profession. You're sitting here waiting to heal your fellow man, and you've got almost nothing to do. I hope it picks up soon, Miles said. You'll regret that. Damn it, our entire population of 8,000 are healthy lost souls in this foreign land, and sickness for us is tweaky little infections like a cold or the flu. And we have to erase ubiquitous thoughts of suicide usually designed to be unsuccessful. My God, we get pilots and passengers with blocked eardrums. Have you ever heard of a blocked eardrum as a life-threatening condition? And never any diagnosis that needs a cutting-edge medical advancement. It drives me to distraction. Miles sat in baffled silence. Well, you don't see it now. Wait a couple of weeks, Oliver said. You'll be as disillusioned as I am. I'll keep alert, Miles said. Oliver placed three books on the desk. LaRousse French-English Dictionary. 
Michelin read guide to restaurants and hotels. On the genealogy of morality. These are for you, he said. To borrow, Miles asked. A gift. These are what we came to value when we arrived. Miles moved the books closer to look through them. Thanks for the Michelin guide, he said. And the dictionary. I don't know French, but why Nietzsche? It's from the wife. She's the intellectual. She believes we've been dumped into the remnants of the outrageous atrocities of post-war Europe. We're living with the mutilated remains of innocent humans, she thinks. Hearts grieving and the extinguished lives of friends and loved ones. It's hard to ignore. She wants to know why it all happened. She's researching a book she plans to write on the Holocaust. The Aryan Belief. She's all about documenting Jewish families' losses during the war. She's troubled by Nietzsche's analysis of society. She thinks it's a significant insight into German psyche at the time. Slave and master ideas. She told me to give it to you. Whew, Miles thought. Nineteenth-century German philosophers. Thanks, he said. I'm not sure I'll understand it. No one ever understands her interest in Nietzsche. Oliver said, but she keeps out handing copies to anyone near enough to accept Jewish and non-Jewish. Miles couldn't imagine Oliver as a philosophical type. Have you read it, he asked. Hell no, I don't give a damn about the German psyche, Oliver said. Slave and master ideas? Uh, Christ, it's more than that. She goes bonkers when people mention Nietzsche. Is it related to the camps? I guess obliquely. She says Nietzsche believed that Western democracy was slavish and weak and that the weak would conquer the strong. He saw it as the degeneration of mankind, those slaves overpowering the master ideas. Well, it seems ponderous to me, Miles said. Moronic, Oliver replied. But I'll give it a try, thanks to your wife. Hey, don't bother reading. Clips notes, maybe. Oliver shook his head in disdain. How did the triage go? Miles raised eyebrows, questioning Oliver's meaning. Your results, uh, Oliver explained. I passed, but Springer seemed disappointed. Oh, Springer is an asshole. The adjutant said Springer was weird, that he hated people smarter and better trained. Every doc believes that, Oliver said. But Springer's pretty damn stupid. He's disliked by everyone except for a few lackeys. Did he say anything to you, Miles asked? He said I made it, as if he expected me to fail. He's not impressed with my medical training. Really? Where? Miami. Well, what's wrong with that? It's only been accredited for a few years. In Springer's mind, it's got no reputation. The School of Medicine needed students, and even with me being a Jew... With no top honors in college, they accepted me. I was really lucky. Where did Springer go to med school? Alabama. He'll detest your Boston education. You thought triage was valuable? Well, not really, Miles said. It's the process that sucks, Oliver said. The observers aren't docs, and they don't grade the treatment of life and death decisions. They grade your following the rules and how fast you complete your work. Miles shook his head. 
That can't matter. In a nuclear disaster, who would be alive to respond, he asked. It's ridiculous, Oliver said. They triage victims like soldiers wounded on the battlefield at Gettysburg. Feed them booze, saw off a limb, stop the bleeding with a hot iron. Death would be ubiquitous, Miles said. That's what Springer thinks, too. But really, military docs would be the first responders. If we were alive, guys like you and me on the periphery wouldn't be able to get to Ground Zero. There'd be no reason. Miles shook his head in agreement. And even if we were alive, we wouldn't have been trained in survival prospects, morbidity, and the delirium at the edge of nuclear disasters, Miles said. It's strange, isn't it? Tie on some colored armbands and they let you go by instinct from there. Let me tell you, we'll never learn anything here. Miles winced. The military should train us. Teach every new idea and technique. They're still studying Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's an obligation to tell us what's been learned so far. Uh, good luck with that, Oliver said. We ought to do something, Oliver, Miles said. Not really interested. It's the military's problem. Jesus, they'd fail if they took education on anyway. But think what might be done, Miles said. We could work on a strategy. It wouldn't take much time. It's not worth any time. Come on, it would be good for all of us. Look, I'm not a crusader, Miles, and I don't want to be involved. It's not about crusade, it's training. Let's talk about it some other time, my man. It's toxic thinking about trying to teach the military anything. In the meantime, my wife wants to ask you to dinner. Tuesday night, can you come? She's one hell of a cook. Where do you live? In Brassu. You know where Brassu is, don't you? Built by the military on French land. Off base. Can't tell one house from another except by the number on the door. Can you make it? Miles didn't hesitate. I'm pleased to, he said. Maybe I'll find a place in Brassu, too. His first invitation. Oliver stood and ditched the uniform. Miles gave a thumbs up as Oliver turned to leave. Oliver Stern's wife turned out to be the same woman who had welcomed Miles at the airport. At first, she seemed to have forgotten the encounter entirely. His memories of the meeting precluded a too enthusiastic greeting. Hello, he said tentatively. Miles Ballard. Ingrid Stern, I'm sorry for my folly at the airport, she whispered to Miles. Miles couldn't make his eyes stray. She had a captivating, casual beauty he had not recognized previously. Dressed in a white silk blouse with pearl buttons open at the neck, white slacks, and pumps with medium heels that made almost no sound as she glided over the wood floor. She had an unpretentious, casual elegance, the exact opposite of the ostentatious, overpriced feminine styles in Boston. After a paratise in the living room, they moved to a casually set dinner table in an open space off the kitchen. Ingrid served sautéed veal cutlets with fresh green beans and daffinoise potatoes. When Miles asked about Ingrid's background, her intelligence was evident. She had degrees in art history and psychology, and she'd been a professional dancer in New York and now, in her early thirties, was still trim and athletic. 
Oliver had grown up in Yonkers. He attended State University of New York at Farmingdale. His father was a rabbi and his marriage to Ingrid was arranged by a shadkin. But he wasn't religious, Oliver made clear, in any way. Eventually, Miles directed the lively conversation to lack of training and the inadequacy of triage in the Air Force. Do you agree about triage, Ingrid asked her husband? Uh, you know, Miles wants to change the world, Ingrid. It's bonkers, Oliver replied. Miles put his fork and knife on the plate and wiped his mouth with a linen napkin. I don't listen to him, he began. I ignore him whenever possible, Ingrid smiled. But I've thought a lot about it, Miles continued. It's a cold war. We're surrounded by an enemy with nuclear capabilities. We need nuclear disaster training. The military is an intellectual vacuum, Oliver said. The military will do nothing. We deserve the training, Miles insisted. They make puny attempts at teaching, but they don't have any concept of postgraduate education as their responsibility, Oliver said. They'll let anybody work at their level of incompetence until they leave the service and then just replace them with an equally incompetent or worse. They don't care about doctors like you or me. We're puppets. Ingrid shook her head. Miles certainly isn't Pinocchio, Ollie. He doesn't need a rebirth. Wait till you get to know him, Oliver laughed, glancing at Miles. He'll wouldn't salute the masters like all of us. You rarely salute anyone, Ingrid said. A slave to no one, Oliver replied. See, Miles, he's read Nietzsche about masters, Ingrid said. I never read it, Oliver said, and what I skimmed I didn't understand. But docs are puppets in this military social structure. Hey, that's a little heavy for me, Miles said. I want to improve as a doctor, do better than I did today. Well, that may be a little overambitious, scheming to change the training of a military environment that assumes, with invented pride, you've been adequately trained when they hire you, Oliver said. I was commandeered, Miles responded. What's your goal? Ingrid asked Miles. Right now, to convince the military to do something about preparing docs for mass casualties, be accurate and trained to assess and minimize mortality. Hire experts to teach us. What will that do, Ingrid asked. If we have training, it'll make a difference in the healthcare by understanding disaster and using healing to advance medical research. Springer doesn't want doctors or staff for their education or competence, Oliver said. He's nepotistic, for one. He hires family of civilian workers with inflated pay. His son is servicing vending machines at the base hospital. In the States, he hired his daughter as a not-really-needed civilian receptionist before she got married to a jerk and moved to Alaska. Is that permitted? Miles asked. Moving to Alaska? No, nepotism, Miles replied, annoyed, becoming aware of Oliver's cynical humor. Absolutely, and the military has a lot of civilian jobs available everywhere. I know, Miles said, but aren't there regulations? I'm a civilian, Ingrid said. Is that nepotistic? A miracle you slipped through screening, Oliver chuckled. But it's not the same, Ingrid. I didn't hire you. 
It seems to me they're lucky to have you, Miles said to Angren. The military hires women civilians who are well-built as they can find and know their place, Oliver said. Well-built? In military mentality, women are born to be domestic sex icons with parental skills, Oliver observed. Oliver, Ingrid admonished. It's true. It's God's will, Oliver said. We need to change that attitude if we're going to be successful, Miles said. And we need the support of all the ducks. They're all male, Ingrid said. But not all misogynists, are they? Miles asked. Oliver looked to Ingrid. Tell him training is not possible. I think it's an admirable idea, she said emphatically. And it's especially important for dependents, too. We're humiliated and ignored by the military. And we suffer the same threat of nuclear extinction as you do. We'd be left to die in a field of rubble after a nuclear disaster in a foreign country. Why don't you help him out, Ollie? Oliver shrugged. I believe in saving your important battles for when you really need them. It's not a battle, Miles said. It's a request. He's right, Ollie. There's no risk of retaliation, Ingrid said. And it is important, very important. Neither of you know Springer like I do, Oliver said, and retaliations in a military community are daily occurrences. We could bypass Springer, Miles said. Go to the division commander first. Do it, Ollie, Ingrid said. It's not much to ask, and you're not pleased with what the military does for us. I get agitated of thoughts of Springer, Oliver said. He's a bastard. But he's got a lousy job. That doesn't make his conduct acceptable. Oliver shook his head. Uh, let's change the subject. Besides, I'm still hungry. Ingrid sighed. You two are the worst dinner conversationalists alive, she smiled with her eyes. Thank goodness there's more to eat. Will you help me? Miles asked Oliver hesitantly. It seems not much to ask, Ingrid said. Oliver shrugged compliantly. Two against one isn't kosher. I'll give it a try, but without enthusiasm. Thanks, Miles said, still puzzled at Oliver's resistance to change for the better. The thought of eating more of Ingrid's cuisine pleased everyone, and she replenished as desired. A few weeks later, Miles and Oliver took a developed proposal for effective triage training for medical personnel to the division commander, Dillinger. In a disaster, they pointed out, doctors and victims would clearly benefit from physician training at the level of triage, saving lives, responding to mass casualties. The commander seemed distracted and listened with dim interest. Uh, where is Springer? He asked. Sir, Miles asked, has he approved this? He knows about it, sir. Uh, was that necessary, approval? Jesus, he's the hospital commander. We weren't sure he'd support it, and there's an acute need for all hospital personnel especially, Miles said. All the docs support us. That's true, Oliver added. I'm sure he'll approve if he's approached with kid gloves. 
Now listen to me very carefully, the commander said. We're in the Air Force, and there is a chain of command. You follow that chain. Involve Springer and get his approval. He's the one to present it to me. Uh, could you at least give us your endorsement, Miles asked. That's not breaking the chain of command, is it? I won't endorse it, the commander said. I won't commit without Springer's approval. I won't undermine his authority. That's not wise in the Air Force. But are there alternative ways for us to succeed, sir? Miles asked. You need Springer's support. Yes, sir, Miles said. We'll try, but confidentially, do you like the idea? The commander paused for a few seconds. It's a good idea, he said without rancor. But don't ever quote me. Miles responded, oh, That means a lot to us, sir. We thank you, and we'll follow your direction to the letter. Miles looked to Oliver, who had nothing to say. They stood, saluted, and left. Two days later, Miles and Oliver met with Springer. It's shit, Springer said. Christ, we got continued education program. We have every month. We had a speaker from the Army a couple months ago and something, and each of you have time off to go to courses. Well, only if they're on base, Miles thought, and were given all that anecdotal drivel about how I succeeded in my career, never valued education. He said, but this is an intense effort to get everyone current with developments that we have to have now, sir. Well, we'd do damn well if you consider my budget. We could request money from the division commander. He might be responsive. I ain't going to be indebted to him for some no-count favor, and he would never do me a favor anyway. He doesn't give a bird poop about supporting the hospital. He's a tight ass. But again, sir, the overall purpose is better training for triage, better care, increased survival. It benefits doctors and staff and, most of all, the patients and dependents. Triage is fine as it is, Springer said. And what about training in general? We do just great. Don't be saying otherwise. But uh, no buts, that's all. We're sorry, sir. Oliver said in an apologetic tone. Miles remained silent. Don't let this happen again, Springer said. Miles' irritation left him at a loss for words. It took a full five seconds before he and Oliver stood to leave. Late in the afternoon the next day, as Miles walked down the corridor towards his exam room, Oliver caught up with him. Are you looked down, my man. What's eating you? It's being the general's personal position. It can't be a rewarding job. That's an assignment many have wiggled out of, I've heard, Oliver said. I tried. Springer said it was an order, Miles said. Sorry, man, Oliver said. You need a break. Have you been to the bumpy landing yet? Miles shook his head no. It's for officers, private, members only. And Dale's away from Chateau in the base. I'll drive, Oliver said, and I'll introduce you as a potential member. I'm thinking of investing as part owner soon, and they need new members. The bumpy landing? 
a place for officers to relax outside the military, among their own. I mean, probably run by a retired NCO. They didn't want to return to the States. A guy named Patrick O'Leary. Everyone calls him Patty. It's like a civilian gentleman's club. I mean, no women, uniforms not required, no sign on the door, rank matters, and it's real private. It's a gentleman's paradise, my man, and no member discusses it, even when pressed, with anyone not a member. So keep a zipped lip. You get it? Miles nodded. Are you up for a little refreshment, Oliver said. We could stay for a meal if you're not busy. After today, Miles said, it's a dream come true. I can put you up for membership tomorrow. Fifty to join, fifteen bucks a month dues. I can get you the letters of endorsement, too. Obviously, Oliver was a smooth character, a social magnet, too. But Miles wasn't sure about the club. It really wasn't his style. They were at the bumpy landing at a polished walnut bar, seated on carved wooden stools with red leather seats. They faced a life-size oil painting behind the bar, between two wide cabinets, each with glass-paned doors, and each with four shelves filled with sparkling clean glass. You like that? Oliver asked, pointing to the gold-leaf-framed artwork. Miles gazed at the canvas. A life-size, sleeping, nuble nude lay on a chaise lounge draped with a gray coverlet trimmed in silver. A white sheet barely covered her right upper thigh and pudendum. A meticulously wrapped, dainty silk wrap covered her neck and right arm, but did nothing to obscure any part of her upper anatomy or any of the sulking sensuality of the sleeping pose. Incredible, isn't it, Oliver asked? Who did it, Miles asked. Uh, Christ, I don't know. Oliver raised his hand for the bartender's attention. Hey, Charlie, who painted this babe? Local artist, sir. It's a copy of Sleeping Nude by Gustave Coupet. Oliver smiled. Hey, not bad. Even a French guy in the boondocks can arouse a guy, right? He turned to Miles. What you gonna do, my man? Springer squashed us like roaches on a concrete floor. Why is Springer so Springerish? Miles asked. He's evil, Miles. Vindictive to the core. You'd be crazy to carry the triage thing too far. Springer sees anything done in the hospital that he didn't initiate as insubordination. Insubordination? It's military weird. Any slight, any innuendo, any contradiction of an order, any action taken without a superior's knowing what's going on can be interpreted as insubordination. The chain of command has precedence over logic and reason. I've heard Springer say it many times. He hates insubordination. But we've made a reasonable proposal. Not me, my man. It was yours all the way. I was along to support you, not the document. You don't support the proposal? I've got nothing against it. It's just not important to me, not worth any risk to my career for supporting it. So what would Springer do, actually? You never know. 
How could he think of a proposal to provide education for his staff as insubordination? It has nothing to do with him. I tell you, in the military mindset, anything that reflects in any way on the career of the impression of a superior officer is a punishable offense. Court-martial and any penalty except death. Even if a proposal has validity, if it appears you're disobeying your commanding officer, you're guilty. It makes no difference if what is done or said is the truth, or valuable, or morally correct for that matter. If there's a perceived hint of disobedience, the accused is guilty of insubordination. It's not that often, but it happens. Would he do that to me? He would, but I don't think it's worth his time right now, and probably not for a proposal for postgraduate education. You got time before dinner? There's someone I'd like you to meet. Miles shrugged. Ah, oh, sure. They walked behind the bar to a room layered with smoke from card players at four tables. A room with three pool tables was visible to their left. They entered the kitchen, saturated with the diffuse aromas of food in preparation. Patrick O'Leary was there, a short man with blue eyes and full reddish beard talking to the chef in a toque. They went out through a side door and walked single foul down a narrow alley and turned right on a narrow street to enter a three-story house, then straight through and out the back. They went to an iron fire escape at the side of an adjacent house, away from street views, and climbed to the top floor. Inside, after a knock on the apartment door, they were greeted by an attractive woman in a terry cloth robe cinched at the waist. Her untethered black hair touched her shoulders, and her dark brown eyes held a penetrating but distant gaze. Her attractive smile was refined but lacked any disclosure of her feelings. Oliver introduced Miles. Uh, Captain Ballard, this is Michelle, Oliver said. She pretty much runs the place. You gotta be a member, and you need Patty's approval to get in. As they walked back into the bar at the landing to have dinner, Oliver said, Michelle is really a gem. Kind, discreet sort of mother for the girls. How did she wind up here? Many French women consorted with the enemy during the war. Some voluntarily, I'm sure. But most had lost husbands, had kids, no job. Sometimes they were raped. Other times they didn't resist in order to survive on pay of a few French coins. Christ, there are more than 200,000 children in France today born from Germans and collaborators screwing vulnerable French women. Do you think Michelle was forced to buy circumstances? Oh, maybe. We'll never know. But I've seen photos. She was humiliated in public after liberation. The resistance shaved her head and marched her through the community as a horizontal collaborator with the enemy. That's terrible, Miles said. But why support the Nazis? To survive? Don't think ill of her, Miles. She's all gold, Oliver said. Thanks, Miles said. But he couldn't help thinking that upholding prostitution was something he would ever do, married or single. How much does Ingrid know about the bumpy landing, he thought. And it's not just an officer's club with drinks and bar food, gambling and shooting pool. It's prostitution. I wish I'd never heard of the place. He thanked Oliver for the invitation to join and said he'd consider it. 
but it still didn't appeal to him, and he doubted he'd apply. Mum's the word, Oliver said. Chapter 4 The General 1960 Miles As a base commander, Brigadier General Thomas Reed was more figurehead than leader. His staff tolerated him, but with minimal respect, and they spent their careers making essential decisions for him based solely on their knowledge and skills. The general, now 65, labored under insuppressible delusions of an early death, inspired by a series of heart flutters suffered in his 40s. On first examination of the general and reviewing his medical record, Miles noted atrial fibrillation. I know that. I didn't deserve it, the general said. You were treated well, sir? Of course I was. Walter Reed, for Christ's sake. But they said it might come back. Miles hesitated. He didn't dislike the general and wanted to assure him without raising yet more anxious concern, the persistent dread of all neurotics. You've had no symptoms for thirty years, Miles said. Your overall health is good. The possibility of a recurrence is really very low. You're just out of medical school, aren't you? The general demanded. I'm well trained, sir. At the best schools, I spent two years as a director of a research laboratory, and then I completed a rigorous internship. You finished, didn't you? Yes, sir. Thanks to the Barry plan, I was allowed to fully train as an M.D. When I finish my tour, I'll return to a surgery residency for specialization. Uh, think about staying in the military, boy. It's a good life. Miles hesitated. Uh, of course, sir. I'll definitely consider it. Keep up with my staff. They take my blood pressure three times a day. Keep my supply of pills up to date. And you schedule an EKG six times a year. Here? All will be taken care of, sir, Miles said. And when we travel, take all that's necessary to keep me alive. Uh, yes, sir, I'll be prepared. You take care of my family, too. My wife and two daughters... The best docs, you hear? Uh, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Miles was headed to Israel on the first trip with the general to deliver parts for a new military aircraft being developed. Parade dress required. The passenger seats installed in front of the cargo hold on the C-118 were half full. Miles recognized the general, an attaché, an adjutant, and two NCOs, but no one else. Hey, Ballard, come here, the general said. He told an attractive woman in a uniform in her early thirties sitting next to him to take another seat. Miles buckled up next to the general, and they remained quiet until after the climb out to cruising altitude and the four-engine roar abated. Are you married? the general asked Miles. No, sir. I hope to be some day. Have a family. Stay single, boy. Stay focused on your duty. Women distract good men from their assignments. Uh, what is my duty on this trip, sir? You don't know? No one's told me. See, that's what I mean about keeping focused. You won't be any damn good unless you've got the gumption to find out what's needed, what's going on. You've got to find things out. Yes, sir, and what should I be doing today? Jesus, Ballard. Talk to the lawyer Goggin. 
He's over there. Uh, yes, sir, Miles said. Has he forgotten why he called me over, he thought. But the general started talking, poking Miles with an unneeded force on the arm. And when you're on your own on these trips, keep in communications with the adjutant every few hours and look sharp. Yes, sir. Talk to these passengers here. You'll depend on all of them to get your duty right. Uh, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. I guess that's all, Miles thought. Tell Patricia to come back and sit here, the general said. Miles signaled Patricia and went to where the lawyer, Bob Goggin, was seated. I'm the general's physician, Miles said. Miles Ballard. Lucky you. You're not happy? Goggin leaned closer to Miles and lowered his voice. I'm miserable. Why? I'm a slave to the general's ego. He's a wannabe dictator without a plan and a lousy leader. Uh, why do you put up with it? You're not regular, are you? I'm going back to complete my surgical training after the tour. Where? Charity Hospital in New Orleans, LSU service. It's a great place for surgery. Well, I'm stuck, man. I'm 12 years to early retirement, then bingo. Out of here. So what am I supposed to do on these trips? It's ridiculous. When they can't arrange it, staff gets local dignitaries to meet the general. Why? It's not logical. It's not like he's going to boost international relations or admiration for Americans. It's to give the general a ceremony. He loves ceremonies. And what do we do, Miles asked. We stand at the end of the airplane stairs in two lines of you, me, and the general's staff and flunkies, and we wait for his highness to emerge at the top of the flight steps when dignitaries arrive at the plane. Then the general descends, ramrod straight, slowly, with faux dignity, and we salute until he's on the ground, uh, this is your career, Miles asked. It gets worse. With a forced smile, he shakes hands with the dignitaries and chats with anyone he thinks important enough to deserve his time. Always in English, and few foreign dignitaries understand him. Meanwhile, we're still standing at attention. And if you're not sharp, he gives you demerits. So he introduces us as his physician, his lawyer, his nurse, his pilot, his co-pilot, and the like. And when he's finished, the adjutant steps out in front of all of us and salutes and yells, Dismissed! Uh, then what do we do? We do what we want on this one. We wander off. We're here overnight and leave tomorrow before noon. Not much time. But there's a squash court near the barracks. Do you play? Well, in college, but I don't have the gear. They'll lend you a racket and the clothes. And a place to shower? Of course. And a grill for food and drinks. I'd like to play, Miles said. Well, good. Take it easy on me. I'm not worth a shit. And my feelings are hurt when I lose. 
I'll play left-handed, Miles said. You are a real gentleman. Are you right-handed? I'll never tell, Miles said. Ambidextrous, eh? I guarantee one hand is better than the other. Twenty bucks siege to the pot. Winner takes all, Goggins said, grinning. Miles had never played squash for money. You hustler, he said. Second only to you, Goggins replied. Chapter 5. Engagement. 1960. Miles. Two days later, Miles had dinner again at Ingrid and Oliver's, and when they'd finished eating, Ingrid suggested they sit outside to watch the sunset and have dessert and wine. I'll get the table and the chairs, Oliver said. Open a bottle of Barsack, please, Ollie, Ingrid requested. A late vintage sauterne from Bordeaux, Oliver said to Miles. A dessert wine. Give it a try. I'd like to, Miles said, becoming more eager to try wines and catch the lingo of the aficionados. Show Miles your paintings, Oliver said. Ingrid led Miles through the house, pointing out oil paintings on the walls of every room, flower arrangements and farm scenes, sunsets, townscapes, bucolic settings. He found the work engaging and pleasing. I like them, he said. Have you been painting long? In school, mostly. I took painting seriously when we arrived in France. I hope to find a teacher. Back in the kitchen, Ingrid took three desserts made of custard and meringue out of the refrigerator. Il flottant, she said. I learned from a cooking class in town. She carried two bowls and handed one to Miles. Open the door for me, please. Oliver had set up three iron chairs around a small yellow-painted wooden table on a carefully tended lawn. As the sun approached the horizon, the light began to fade. The green of the lawn and the vibrant flowers and shrubs so carefully planted in the garden plot near the house darkened to a leaden gray. You know, there's a chill, Ingrid said a few minutes later. Let's move to the family room. Ingrid placed lit candles on the mantel and side tables. After Oliver served Calvados at a brandy glass, he settled with Ingrid on a two-seater overstuffed sofa. Miles sat in a matching armchair. Have you ever been married, Miles? Ingrid asked. Sorry, my man. She's a card-carrying romantic, Oliver said. I tried, said Miles impressed and a little envious of the warm, caring reciprocity he saw between Ingrid and Oliver, that his story would seem parched and ordinary. He decided to move on to other topics when Ingrid said, So tell us, how did you meet? Her interest, tinted with concern, touched him. He needed to tell someone, judge their reactions. Well, the elite women's society groups in Boston have fairs on the Boston Commons to provide food and clothing for the homeless, and medical students are asked to volunteer to do exams if needed. I saw her. She was a socialite. Yes, yes, rich and related. She claimed, as so many citizens in Boston do, to have blood relations to the cabins and the lodges. I mean, who knows? I found her so attractive. I asked her out to dinner at the Parker House Hotel on our first meeting. Did she live in Boston? Her family's house was on Beacon Hill, but she was there only when school was out. 
She worked in emissions at Smith College, a hundred miles north in Northampton. When we did get together, it was always in Boston and only for a couple days. We usually went to the Museum of Fine Arts and never missed a Hatch Shell concert. She didn't enjoy the Bruins or Red Sox games I took her to. Twice we went out to Provincetown for parades and many times Tanglewood for festival events. Oh, it seems so idyllic, Ingrid said. What happened? So I bought her this engagement ring from Shreve Crumpton Lowe, the most expensive jeweler in Boston. A carotid and a half diamond is set in white gold. And when I offered it to her, she shoved it away. Have you asked Daddy? I said I could call him, but she said no. It had to be in person. He's traditional. There in Maine, she said. They retired there and were having a family get-together on Saturday. You can stay in the attic, she said. I put the ring back in the jewelry box and offered it to her again. It will be a secret commitment between us. But she said to keep it and bring it with me. Can't we go together, I asked. But she was going up Thursday with Aunt Eunice. She turned to leave. I've got to go to Filene's to find a dress for commencement. Oliver refreshed the brandy glasses. So what happened in Maine, Ingrid asked. It didn't start well. The weekenders who crowded I-95 held me up in traffic at the New Hampshire border. I arrived an hour and a half late. Emily was out walking along the coast with her Aunt Eunice. I introduced myself to the family and friends, and no one seemed to be aware of my feelings for Em, and no one seemed to exactly know who I was. I was thankful when Em entered the room with her hair tousled from the ever-present offshore winds, her delicate skin pink rosy by the sun. Her natural beauty always astonished me, and without a word, she led me outside to her father, who tended a brick grill in the lee of the house behind sharp-edged stone boulders that protected from the weather. After a hug and a brief greeting with her father, she left me on my own. Was he what you expected, Oliver asked? Well, for the most part, he wore a full white apron emblazoned with this sketchy age-faded image of James Beard. He prodded stakes with one hand and flipped aluminum foil-wrapped baked potatoes gripped by stainless steel tongs with the other. I'd like to marry him, I finally said, faking confidence and sounding totally inadequate. Uh, your idea, he asked. Uh, we'd both like your permission, sir. It's important to both of us. Lodge stoked the charcoal fire, and he signaled to a black servant who stood at the door of the back of the house to take over tending the grill. Walk the coastline with me, Lodge said. We need to talk. We walked side by side on a narrow path that spiraled among the rocks. I appreciate your time to be able to, I began. Don't grovel. Lodge interrupted. Talk straight. I adjusted my stride to his measured slower pace. And you've already asked her, haven't you? Yes, I said. Well, it's a little late to come to me then. I got here as soon as possible, I countered. Em was upset that I hadn't asked you first, sir. She didn't want to make a commitment until I talked with you. I am upset. I expect a wannabe son-in-law to follow convention. 
It's lust, isn't it? Your generation is always about getting a great lay. Uh, not at all, I said, offended by the implication. I was sure Emily was a virgin. At least she claimed to be when avoiding any serious intimacy. Your generation scorns etiquette, Lodge said. He stopped walking abruptly, standing silently, staring at the sea. I told him again, It's not lust. We're in love, sir. He scoffed. What do you have to offer her? Oh, I was ready for that. I hope a very happy existence. I'm a doctor with every chance of a successful career. You went to Harvard, he asked. I told him to for medical school, Boston City Hospital, for my internship. I'd really begun to dislike Lodge at this point. Lodge stared at the sea as we began walking again. What do your parents do, he asked. Well, my father drove his own long-haul 18-wheeler until he retired, and he made handcrafted furniture to sell. My mother taught preschoolers. My father died a few years ago, and my mother's been in terminal care with dementia for more than a decade. She doesn't recognize anyone now, not even family. My two sisters care for her. He said that made him even more concerned. I wonder if you're qualified to keep Emily in the manner she is accustomed to. Of course, he meant Emily's social status, her club memberships, her appointments, her potential leadership in political and charitable Boston institutions. I said I'd be a good husband, and Lodge raised his voice over the sound of the surge on the rocks. How can you know that, he said. I love your daughter as no one else will. Well, I don't think that's true. She's adored by everyone. He frowned. Do you approve of our engagement, sir? I don't know yet, he said. I told him, I'll be meeting my service obligation in a few months. Vietnam? No, France. I'd like to take Emily with me as my wife. She loves Boston, boy. Wait till you return to ask. We'd like to start our new life together as soon as possible. And you think being a military wife in France is decent for a girl like Em? He asked. Of course, I said. Lodge glanced toward the house. I'll see what Mrs. Lodge thinks. That night at 10 o'clock, Em showed me to the narrow, cramped stairs to the attic. The attic walls angled sharply to a peak and a single small triangular-shaped window provided a narrow view to the sea but allowed only a modicum of light to filter in. I switched on a bare 60-watt bulb dangling from the ceiling by a black electrical cord. A cot without linens or pillow was tucked into the wedge made by the ceiling with the floor. I lay down fully dressed and pulled up an antique quilt that would have barely covered a child. I used my rolled-up coat for a pillow. An hour later, I heard Emily's parents talking in their bedroom directly below. They were preparing for bed. Minutes later, Lodge asked his wife something I couldn't make out. The light switched off. I told her no, Ham's mom said. Parker desires her. My God, Parker is crazy only for himself, Lodge said. He asked what Emmett said. Mrs. Lodge said that she doesn't want Parker. Well, that's understandable, he said. Not at all, Calvin. 
She should learn to care for him over time, and she would be content with him in every way. Her tone was distorted and angry. You don't like this boy, do you, Lodge said. He's not one of us, Calvin, Mrs. Lodge said. Do you think she loves him? Of course not. She's infatuated, for Christ's sake, and she's too well-bred to be sidetracked by romance. If she loves him, she doesn't love him. She doesn't have the capacity, and she's got Parker. He's too old, Brenda. He'd be like a stepfather. Well, she doesn't love this boy, whatever his name is. Miles, his name is Miles, he said. She snorted. He's got no connections. Well, Parker has connections, but he's not likable or lovable. And if she loves the boy, we can introduce him to those that matter. He'd sink like a drop stone into the ocean. He's not her type. She deserves someone who's comfortable in life, who would make her life royal. Ah, let her make the decision, Brenda. I'm sure the boy would support her. He's a doctor, for God's sake. His time and his brain are taken by others. Well, that pissed me off. Lodge continued, That's not fair, Brenda. Name me one doctor we know whose wife is happy. Just one. Doctors marry women that are like their aides or receptionists or loyal cooks, thoughtless slaves. He said it still should be her choice. But she said, Doctors are too busy working on their Humpty Dumpties. What if she accepts without our blessings? Oh, God forbid, we'll cut her off. We can't do that, Brenda. Don't worry, she hasn't got the gumption to go against us. Hours later, still awake and thinking about what had been said, I heard snorts and wheezes. I couldn't stay in the house any longer. At just past three o'clock, I descended the stairs, left the box with the ring on the dining room table, and walked to my car. I wiped a thin layer of ice from the windshield and left. Three and a half hours later, I was back in Boston. For three days, Emily did not return my repeated calls until finally she left a message on my answering machine to meet her in Boston Garden. She greeted me without touching and suggested we sit on a bench on a path near a bridge over a pond with swan boats. I still had hoped things would go my way. In the midst of gaiety and excitement in the crowd, we were encased in an awkward silence. I tried to be upbeat. Your house in Maine is really impressive, I said. But all she said was, Why did you leave without thanking my parents? I took a deep breath. I heard them talking in the bedroom, and it wasn't pleasant. You were spying. No, of course not. I could hear everything clear as day from the attic. It's bad-mannered. Really, I couldn't help but hear. Your mother definitely doesn't like me. Your father thought you should make your own decision, and I thought that was decent of him. It's hard for them, Miles. We've talked about it for hours. Why is it hard? They want me to marry Parker Batten. Only your mother. No, both of them. I doubted that. Did they tell you I don't measure up to their standards? She stared with a strange, lifeless agitation at a swan boat filled to capacity. 
then took out the ring box from her bag and handed it to me. Now she looked impatient with restless irritation, and she did not look at me. I can't accept this, she said. I told her I loved her, but she said she'd accepted Parker's proposal and that she had to go on. I asked her to wait, but she said it was over and that she was frankly glad to have made the decision. Then she told me not to follow her, and she walked away. With an almost empty wine glass, Miles reached out to Oliver for a refill. I had always believed if two people really loved one another, nothing could keep them apart. Oh, damn women, Oliver said. Ingrid frowned at Oliver. Then she talked to Miles. I'm so sorry, Miles. Will you ever get over her? I, I don't know. Maybe with time, but I doubt it. The whole affair erased my confidence with women. I wasn't the right guy for her, that's for certain. But the real folly was that for two years I thought she loved me. Chapter 6 Alice, New York City, late 1961 Alice Reeb wrote weekly articles on cuisine and culture for the New York Herald Tribune. For years, the troubled paper dealt with strikes and changes in leadership, and Alice dreaded this emergency meeting with purpose undisclosed. After two hours of waiting, a secretary told her she could enter. Jacob Heinemann, the editor-in-chief, sat behind a desk cluttered with papers and books, a typewriter, and a dial phone. Months-old holiday gift wrapping spilled out of a trash can at the side of his desk. He hadn't shaved in days, and his dark brown eyes were dimmed with fatigue. He was not one for small talk. Uh, look, he said, I, I don't feel good about this, Alice, but I've got to let you go. Alice swallowed, struck by a sudden surge of anxiety. Why? The paper's folding. It's about the end for all of us. Couldn't you keep me on in a reduced salary for a while, Alice said. I can't. We're rarely publishing anything on cuisine or culture now. Help me get a job at the Times, then, Jake, she said, hoping she didn't sound like she was pleading. I could cover culture. I've tried for others, Heinemann said. It's no use. You can apply on your own, but they said to stop sending people over. What about the International Tribune? Even if they wanted you, you'd have to live in Europe. Do they have a spot open? I don't know. I doubt they're hiring. But I can live in Europe. I have family there now. It's different after the war. I could freelance, get paid by the piece. Jacob leaned back in the swivel chair and clasped his hands behind his head, breathing through his mouth. His upper lip twitched irregularly, and he wiped spit from his mouth with the back of his hand. Alice waited, her pulse on the fly. Considering his words carefully, Heinemann leaned forward in a gesture of intimacy. He genuinely liked Alice, and her journalism was improving. I'll try, Alice. I'll ask for freelance work. But to get published at all, you'd have to know Europe inside and out. And submit. 
I doubt you'll get assignments, at least at first. Alice exhaled. I'll do it, she said. She wanted to hug him. I'll be in touch then, but I don't think there's much chance they'll buy it. But they did accept, with reluctance. The editor in Paris told Alice she needed to improve her writing, but based on Heinemann's recommendation, he'd let her freelance as long as she understood it was for a trial period. Three weeks later, Alice arrived in France, where her father, Brigadier General Thomas Reed, base commander of the Chateauroux Air Base, and her mother, Gertrude, lived in an American-constructed housing development of Brassou. Alice contemplated their single-family one-story house painted a pale, dirt-puddle brown with faded off-white trim around the doors and windows. Her mother expected her arrival, but was far less cordial than Alice had hoped. Uh, the general's in, in Berlin, her mother said. I, th I think he'll be back tomorrow. He's always gone these days with the Cold War. Alice guessed her father's absences were less due to General's duties and more to escape her mother's doom and gloom personality, spiced with acid critiques of everything and everybody. Her mother directed Alice to carry her luggage to a bedroom at the back of the house. I've made uh, macaroni and cheese for tonight. Uh, your favorite? Not since I was nine, Alice thought. Immediately sorry for mentally reproving her mother so soon after her arrival. The only furniture in the bedroom was a single bed with folded linen, a pillow without a case, a wadded-up military-issue blanket on a mattress, and a metal folding chair. Do you have a table for a typewriter? Alice asked. I'll have to requisition a table. It always takes a while. You'll have to buy a typewriter from the commissary. Uh, could I use the dining room table until the table arrives? I'll give you a tablecloth to protect the surface. Alice asked Mother if she could explore the base before she prepared dinner. But Mother didn't drive in France, and she wouldn't let Alice drive their car without the general's permission. I'll unpack, Alice said. You can read in the living room, dear, until dinner. That's fine, Mother, but I think I'll walk. Tommy has arranged a tour for you with the captain's wife after you've settled a little. Her name is Ingrid something. She works for a development as a paid guide for the newcomers. The general never did make it home, and Alice and her mother ate alone. Alice went to bed to read, but the only light filtering from an opaque white glass domed fixture on the ceiling was too meager to read by. She lay, discouraged, staring up at two flies, creeping erratically where the ceiling met the wall until she fell asleep. Almost two weeks after Alice's arrival, Ingrid and Alice left the base for a day trip to the Chateau de Chenon. Alice declined to ride in Ingrid's staff car and insisted on driving the General Citroën DS for practice on French roads. Ingrid sat in the passenger seat with a Michelin map of central France laid out on her lap. They started on the D-943, heading northwest. Your husband's a doctor, Alice asked. Oh, yes, an M.D. Does he like the military? Ingrid looked up from the map and leaned her head back against the headrest. He seems to, she said. And you, Alice asked. 
I really like living in France, Ingrid said evasively. And the military? Oh, it's okay, Ingrid said. Really? That doesn't sound convincing. And don't worry about me. The general may be my father, but I'm definitely not pro-military. I'm just interested now in a possible article regarding military medicine. Well, military medicine is hard for doctors, Ingrid admitted. Well, why is that? They like most of the hospital staff. It's the quality of care that bothers them. The equipment's antiquated. All the specialties aren't covered, and there's very little postgraduate education. Do you know Colonel Springer? Uh, not at all, Alice said. He's the head of the hospital. Most of the doctors don't like him. My father thinks his hospital runs like a Swiss watch, Alice said. Is that a general's perspective? Well, that's possible. Father's prone to say that things are perfect rather than try to make them better. And how did he get to be a general, Ingrid asked, then made an internal grimace. It wasn't an appropriate question. Alice laughed. You don't necessarily advance in the military by hard work and distinguished skills. For many, it's mostly contacts and longevity, she said with a touch of spite. But he's your father. He's always the general to me. I can't say he considers me anything like a blood relative. Most of the time, he just ignores me. He's not worthy of my admiration. Ingrid thought for a moment, puzzled by Alice's resentment. You don't care for your father, then? Alice laughed uneasily. It's, uh, uh, I'm sorry. It's rude to ask, Ingrid said hurriedly. He's okay, I guess, Alice said. He tolerates me. You have siblings? Yes, a sister. I was adopted when I was four, three years before they conceived my sister. The general's disappointment in me made him fertile, I guess. Or maybe my mother was fruitless until then. <laughs> Who knows? My mother's definitely not the type to be unfaithful, just incapable of making it happen for a while or since. Well, it sounds miserable. That's more like irritating. My sister Margaret is the holy grail to them. When she's around, I just feel invisible in a family consumed by self. It used to wither my self-confidence. But I'm doing better now. This is the first time I've seen my parents for more than a few days at a time in over 15 years. Look out! Ingrid cried as they rounded a sharp curve. Alice slammed on the brakes and swerved to miss a two-wheeled wooden cart loaded with logs pulled by two brown oxen. Ingrid's head hit the dashboard. The Citroën's engine stalled, and the car came to a stop tilted into a shallow ditch. Ingrid moaned. Damn, Alice muttered. Are you hurt? Ingrid sat up and touched a sore spot. I don't see any blood, Alice said but I bet there's going to be a swelling. I'll live, Ingrid groaned, but her head hurt. The cart stopped a few yards in front of them. The driver, in coveralls and a long sleeve collared shirt, cap in hand, tapped on the Citroën's driver's side window, his face contorted with distress. Alice rolled down the window. Uh, we're all right, she said. The man was close to tears and repeated over and over in French that he was sorry. It's okay, it's my fault, Alice said. He seemed to know her meaning. 
after Alice and Ingrid checked the car and found no damage, Alice started the engine and eased the Citroën back on the road. The man smiled and waved as they pulled the cart around. The swelling on Ingrid's forehead had turned purple. Are you sure you're all right? Alice asked. Okay, Ingrid said, just a little sore. I'm so sorry. It's not your fault, Alice. I should have been paying more attention. After a few moments, their heart rate slowed and their minds calmed. Ingrid said her head felt much better, but the wound still looked painful to Alice, and she drove at a reduced speed. Does Oliver have any friends at the hospital? Alice asked. Miles Ballard is his best friend. He's the general's GMO. What's that? General medical officer. Oh, he's my father's doctor. There's nothing wrong with father. He's a health nut, and he fears death as his greatest enemy. As the general's physician, is your friend my doctor, too? Well, I assume so, Ingrid said. You'll be pleased. Miles is ten times smarter than anyone at the hospital. Boston trained, number one in his graduating class, AOA, valedictorian, and he's got a kind heart. Just as long as he's competent, cute, and single. Ingrid smiled. You'll like him. He wanted to marry this woman from Boston. It didn't work out. Her family was from colonial times, deep pockets. She turned him down. He was hurt. Probably the only eligible boys in Boston are in her stratosphere as possibilities. He thought they were in love, but he wasn't from the privileged classes. I suspect any society girl is too full of herself to fall in love with anyone. Boston's that way most of the time. I went to BU. I would guess Miles would have been the first serious normal male without excessive wealth to take a sincere interest in her, and no doubt her family wouldn't like anyone not genetically tied to them. You'd have to be a weird human being to drivel in awe at Boston lineage. It's all so trivial. He overheard the parents talking about him. Her mother really disliked him. He told us all the details. You must know him well. Doctors seem so impenetrable to me. A clam in its shell. I know what you mean, but I think Miles is sincere, if a little reticent. They were approaching Noyanta Torang. Let's have an early lunch, Alice said. Super, said Ingrid. And on me. The general staff has a special fund for me to entertain certain people I ferry around. She'd forgotten for the moment that Alice was the general's daughter. I'm amazed at the military perks. All on the taxpayer, Alice said. Well, let's not economize today, Ingrid grinned. Look for something in the Michelin Guide, in the glove compartment, something tasty enough that I might be able to send an article to the Tribune. Ingrid looked for a restaurant. La Ciboulette looks good. It's on the route. They ordered specialties and Sauvignon Blanc. I read last night about the Chateau de Chenon, Alice said. Where? Ingrid asked. At the base library, Alice said. The general does read books. Mother has stacks of ladies' home journal in the National Geographic in the utility room, but I've never seen her reading them. 
Joan of Arc stayed at Chinon, Ingrid said. She was burned at the stake at 19 in 1430. They were delayed by a small herd of meandering cows, unresponsive to the young farm boy with a stick trying to manage them. Sort of enviable, Alice said, to make that much of a historical impact in 19 years. I'm 31, willfully childless, and the lines on my CV are less than four inches, single-spaced on one page. But you change people with your writing, Ingrid said. Any impact I have, Alice said, lasts less than a day. Do you write? I try, Ingrid said. I'm preparing to write about Jewish families in Europe, not just to tell what happened during the Holocaust, but to understand why it happened and how it felt. Well, I wish I were that ambitious, Alice said. Many people in my family died, Ingrid continued, but we've never known the details. Uh, they lived in France? I'm sure most of my family did, probably others in my husband's family in Germany and Poland. Are you writing fiction, Alice asked? Uh, not really. More like historical fiction based on fact, Ingrid said. But not a documentary. I want to make the story a tribute to those who lived it. Facts will be hard to validate. It was such a turbulent time. I'll have to rely on memories, innuendos, and photographs. Historical fiction seems the most effective way to capture the terror and pain of the occupation. Well, that's a lot, Alice said. Would you read it? Of course, Alice slowed for the crossroads. Are we close, she asked. Ingrid looked for a roadside to give an indication of their position, then studied the map. I'd guess we have less than 20 minutes. The Chateau de Chinon dated from the 10th century and consisted of three castles and many towers. It had endured long periods of alternating grandeur and decay over many centuries. They took a tour in English led by an elderly French male guide with graying hair, shrewd blue eyes, a wry smile, and a full nut-brown beard. They were in the Tour de Coudray, the westernmost castle. Uh, this is where Joan of Arc stayed in 1429, the guide said. He detailed how she convinced the soon-to-be Charles VII of the truth of her heavenly visitations. He provided her with an army. She was victorious in many campaigns, including a momentous victory at Orléans that repulsed the English attempt to conquer France during the Hundred Years' War. In 1430, she was captured and sold to the English. In Rouen, she was accused of heresy for her rejection of church authority in favor of the direct inspiration from God and burned at the stake at the age of 19. She was canonized in 1909 and immediately became one of France's most revered saints. The first few minutes of the drive back to Chateauroux were spent in quiet contemplation. That really moved me, Alice finally said. How hard life was, all the death and suffering. They never had a touch of joy about anything but religion, and that was more fear and guilt than joy and salvation. And they had little education and only a dry-leaf love for a God they could barely imagine. They rarely knew true love for another, never experienced romance. Hard work and fighting for survival was all they knew.
I wonder what scholars in a thousand years will think of us, Ingrid said. Will they understand what being human meant to us? They'll have knowledge of a lot more philosophers and historians, Alice said. Journalists and scientists, Ingrid agreed. Politicians, Alice continued. Industrialists and the intensely religious worshippers all recording for those who survive to learn about us. But will they be able to convey what really goes on in our lives? They'll have a lot more than we know about the 15th century. But of any value for really understanding humanity? I don't think anyone can understand that. Why we're here and what makes us do what we do will always be enigmas. Humanity is constantly evolving, but understanding the whys of existence is static. It's difficult to write about, Alice said. For the better, Ingrid asked. For the worse, I think now, especially being in Europe after the war. Ingrid smiled. When they'd first met, Alice seemed removed from the world, like an image in a mirror, nothing more than a reflection. But she felt human to her now, and Ingrid liked her more. Chapter 7 Searching for Truth Oradora Sir Glenn, 1961, Ingrid. On Saturday morning after rounds, Miles waited in front of the hospital as Ingrid and Oliver approached in their Jaguar sedan. He drove, Ingrid sat in the back seat. As Miles got in front, Ingrid introduced Belinda May Cerrone sitting to her right. She's a dancer, Ingrid said. We're in dance class together on the base. Ingrid's the best, Belinda May said in a high nasal voice, edged enough to trouble the ear. She's better than our teachers. Belinda was a chorus girl on Broadway before she got married, Ingrid said. I tried out for the Rockettes, but they chose someone taller. You did ballet, didn't you? Miles asked Ingrid. Ballet and modern dance. Tap, too. Sometimes I wish I'd done shows. Belinda May was in Goldilocks. It closed so soon, Belinda May said sadly. Who did the choreography? Ingrid asked Belinda May. Agnes DeMille, Belinda May said. Uh, do you know her? I met her twice when I was in New York. Oh, that's really cool, Belinda May said. What's your husband do? Oliver asked Belinda May over his shoulder. The Jaguar drifted to the edge of the narrow road. Oliver jerk corrected the car back on the road. Be careful, Ingrid admonished. Miles frowned with concern. It had been too close for comfort. He does maintenance, Belinda May said to answer Oliver's question. He's an engineer. We have two children, three and one. Talk lagged for many seconds as everyone recovered from the near accident. Finally, Ingrid said, Belinda and I will be dancing in the base Christmas show this year. Yeah, Belinda May said. Save me a ticket, Miles said. It's free, Belinda May said unnecessarily. They dined at Le Chevronet restaurant in Limoges and drove about 12 miles northwest to Oro Glen. Over coffee after lunch, 
Ingrid talked about what she'd learned as a base-approved tour guide. I've never heard of Oradora, Miles said. Well, it's not well known to Americans. People don't want to think about it. About what? Blinda May said. Or German atrocities? This is where it took place? Blinda May asked with uninformed astonishment. When? During the occupation, Ingrid said. Who did it? The SS, Oliver said. What's that? Belinda May asked. The Fuhrer's security guard. They had unlimited authority. A license to murder innocents, Miles said. They annihilated everyone and everything, Oliver said. Oh, wow, Belinda May said vaguely. Ingrid felt Belinda May's response disrespectful. 642 villagers were massacred on June 10, 1944, four days after the D-Day invasion, by more than 200 German soldiers of the 2nd SS Panzer Division. The whole town? Belinda May said, agonized by the truth. Seven people survived, Ingrid said, bearing grief for innocents killed without justice or trial or any wrongdoing in the first place. It's hard to imagine, Miles said. The group went silent. They finished lunch and drove to the town. The four seldom spoke as they walked up the town center. Nothing had changed in 18 years. Skeleton forms of buildings surrounded by rubble mixed among contrasting vibrant scrubs and healthy grass. Rusted shells of burned-out tireless vehicles were scattered on the streets and yards. A metal frame bed lay twisted and distorted from the fire. A rusted stove, a sewing machine seemed to teeter on the ledge of a partial remains of a window. Metal utensils, automobile tire rims, bicycle frames. A restrained miasma bore the onus of innocent lives extinguished. I can never fathom the amount of hate and evil, Ingrid said. Oh, they would all say they were just following orders, Oliver said. Still, what about them as individuals allowed them to kill innocent women and children, Ingrid asked. She stopped and looked at a map. She pointed to charred ruins near the town edge. The men were forced into barns and burned to death. Why didn't they run? Belinda May asked. Many were shot in the legs so they couldn't escape. They should have fought back, Belinda May said. They were villagers, Belinda May, Ingrid said. Farmers, not soldiers. Were they after Jews, Oliver asked. I don't think uh, they targeted Jews on this day, Ingrid said. There were seven refugees among those killed, but I think this was more to intimidate the resistance. As they walked, they passed a painted metal sign on the ground near the door of the store. Boulangerie painted letters scored and marred. Inside, between ruined walls, an oven door hung down, dented and tilted to one side, attached by only one hinge. They came to the church. Uh, this is where the women and children were imprisoned behind locked doors, Ingrid said. Children? Belinda May moaned. More than two hundred. They entered the interior of what remained. How could they do this, Miles asked. It is incomprehensible, Ingrid replied. Inside the church, 
The exterior walls were partially intact but crumbling. Much of the roof was destroyed, and an indirect early afternoon sun filtered diffused light to throw ragged-edged shadows on the dirt floor and decrepit walls. In the center of the sanctuary, the skeletal metal remains of a pram lay flattened on the dirt floor. Behind the remains of the altar at the back of the church, Ingrid pointed up to arch window frames now without their original stained glass or lead frameworks. One woman escaped through there, Ingrid said, pointing to the central window. She found a ladder for lighting candles and climbed to that window with a full-size standing image of Christ and broke the stained glass. As she thrust herself out, a machine gunner landed four shots on her body. Half-conscious, she fell twelve feet to the ground. At the far edge of town, they began to retrace their steps back to the car. Was anyone ever punished, Miles asked Ingrid. Well, some have been tried and convicted, but most of the sentences were reversed or not enforced. Others acquitted. For a few minutes, all four remained quiet, consumed by their private thoughts. It's hard for me to process what happened, Miles said as they were underway on their return to base. It was so definitive and irrevocable. I try not to imagine it, Ingrid said. The cruelty. We need to pray for the victims and move on. A lot of good praying will do, Oliver said. There can't be any harm in that, Miles thought. Never forget, Ingrid said. I'm going to write about it. Never forget. There are so many stories that must be told. A somber mood prevailed. They returned to base in just under an hour and took Belinda May to her quarters. On the return to Brassu, Oliver turned to Ingrid. Why did you ask that Belinda May person? She's alone, Ollie. Her husband works on C-130s all the time, and she's sweet and lonely. Her brain is molasses, Oliver said. That's not fair. She's kind and sensitive and a loving mother, in many ways a special human being. A waste of time, he said. Ingrid's breathing quickened with disagreement. Miles remained silent. Minutes later, when they reached Brassu, the persistent ill-feeling between Oliver and Ingrid made Miles uneasy, and he was sorry. He liked both of them. Ingrid had read many articles on the Holocaust by a professor at the École Normale Supérieure, Dennis Martin. He was an obvious essential research for her book. Miles's French teacher's brother had known the professor in school, and he arranged an appointment for Ingrid. Ingrid asked Alice, as a journalist, if she would like to accompany her, and they traveled to Paris for a visit. The professor greeted them in a small second-floor office. Ingrid and Alice took their seats in two wooden armless chairs facing the professor, who sat behind a knee-hole mahogany writing desk, its tooled leather top clear except for a pen ink stand and an appointment book. The professor had unkempt dark hair streaked with strands of gray, and he peered at them with watery, dark brown eyes over half-circle reading glasses in wire frames. What is it about your book? the professor asked Ingrid. I've started to write about my family members during the occupation. I'm looking for insights into their ordeal and where I can learn more. 
You must know that I lived through those times, the professor said. Oh, yes, from your writings. And you, mademoiselle, he asked Alice, what may I do for you? I'm a writer for the International Herald Tribune. I'm writing documentary articles on events and people. The more I learn about the Holocaust, the more difficult I find it to verify facts, Alice said. Or any facts at all, said Angry. The professor nodded. Part of that is the revision of history by the deniers who falsely profess that the Holocaust never happened and it's a hoax perpetrated by the Jews. The Nazis were terribly effective in keeping the genocide in the camps hidden and then, during the liberation, they symptomatically destroyed documents and evidence. How many were killed, Alice asked. Millions. We will never know the reasonable estimate. But it was extensive. They developed a brutal and effective system for killing. The crematorium at Auschwitz-Birkenau could incinerate up to 6,000 corpses a day. Was genocide just to elevate Aryans to world domination? Ingrid asked. European domination, at least. It certainly played a major role, the professor said. The Nazis wanted a society of alikes and despised those nonconformists to the Aryan image. Uh, Aryan meaning um, Caucasian and not of Jewish descent. But the designation became blurred. By Nazi definition, a gypsy would be an Aryan. The gypsy population had increased in Europe for centuries, and the Nazis needed to classify them as non-Aryan so as to include them in the deadly cleansing. So the Nazis altered the Nuremberg Laws. They deprived Jews of German citizenships, designating them as subjects of the state, and limiting business and preventing intermarriages and performing sterilizations. The gypsies were added to the law as nonconformist. They became non-persons, people of foreign blood and labor-shy and part of the asocials. Under Hitler's authority, Himmler began the extermination of the gypsies, more than 20,000 at Auschwitz alone. When did the killing start? Alice asked. Well, in September of 1939, a secret program known as euthanasia began the systematic murder of German, Austrian, and Polish hospital patients with mental or physical disabilities. By 1941... Massacres of Jews and non-Jew undesirables were accomplished by gassing, shooting, and hanging. People are forgetting the horrors, Professor, Ingrid said. Are you concerned it could happen again? It is a fundamental question. I believe, without doubt, it will happen again in some form. Massacres have been in societies for millennia. What have we learned Ingrid asked, reaching into her handbag for a copy of Nietzsche's 19th century writings in her notebook. The concept of a superior master race has been discussed in German academia for a long time. Nietzsche thinks about the master race in slaves. The intelligentsia of the 19th century accepted the premise of superiority, the professor said. Have you read Hitler's autobiography, Mein Kampf? Nietzsche greatly influenced it. I, I tried to find a copy, Ingrid said. It's against the law to publish or distribute in some countries. 
I tried in the States. It wasn't available in libraries or bookstores. The professor rose to retrieve a book from the shelves behind him. I bought this early second edition that the Nazi government distributed to be read by soldiers and civil servants. It contains both volumes. I'll loan it to you, but I need it back within two weeks. I reference it often. Ingrid accepted and expressed her gratitude. She glanced at Alice to let her know she would share. Alice had her diary open in her lap. She wrote notes. What are the signs, Professor Alice asked? What alerts us to the danger? I have come to believe genocide is consequence of change in composition of society and culture, a change in belief and perception and core values in a social group. If there is hereditary factor, it is minor. Really? In Germany, fathers, sons, and even mothers participated in the killing. Doesn't that reflect an hereditary factor of the willingness or the desire to kill innocents, Alice said. Of course, I don't know, the professor said, but it's not wise to think of genetics as the major influence in an individual's contribution to a massacre. I believe an individual ability to kill innocents is an aberration of the individual's free will and morality. We're all products of our genetic inheritance, but to participate in massacre is the emergence in society of vicious beliefs that killing others for racial or nonconformist cleansing is justified. I believe individuals have responsibility not to succumb to such evil. Does absence of religion play a role? Ellis asked. I don't know. Certainly the aberration of morality would play a role. But genocide is not justified by belief that victims are consigned to an afterlife for their benefit. The Germans made that argument when they called the killing of mentally and physically disabled hospital patients euthanasia, when their purpose clearly was to cleanse human existence of what they saw as undesirables. Do you see? Both Ingrid and Alice nodded. It's hard to know individual motives in the aftermath, Alice said, and it's after the fact. Are there changes in society that might justify justification for mass murders? In our times, democratic governance with free speech and fairly elected politicians that govern by consensus of a majority seem to make the emergence of massacres less likely. So a major societal change by autocratic leaders who seek absolute power is a threat. These leaders will dismantle democratic societies. They'll remove adversaries from office and physically and mentally incapacitate them by poisoning or assassination. They disrupt elections so the majority's will is not known. And the autocrats are consummate liars bringing fear of the uncertain future or false perception of danger of nonconformists to a populace to motivate them to hostile action. And the autocrat uses myths to incite crowds. Hitler was a master of this. He used anti-Semitic canards and the myth of blood libel to inflame hate in his followers. Uh, I, I don't know what blood libel is, uh, Ellis said. Ingrid answered. 
It's the false inflammatory characterization that Jews murder Christian children or Gentiles to use their blood in performance of religious rituals for healing. False accusations that reach back to the birth of Christianity. It has been a major theme in persecution of the Jews for centuries. Exactly, said the professor. And Hitler used many false claims of Jews being responsible for promoting the rise of communism, or they were collectively responsible for the persecution of Jesus. These anti-Semitic canards were central to Hitler's worldview, and they persisted for millennia and into the present. To find out more, here's the name of an Oradora survivor who speaks out about the tragedy. He lives in Tour now. He wrote the name and address on a scrap of paper. Also, you might investigate details of Dachau. It was the first camp established. Early on, it housed Russian prisoners, intellectuals, political adversaries. Only later did incarceration of Jews and women become common as gas chambers and crematoria were constructed. These were not destroyed at Dachau, and I have a name of a Jewish Shabiru who is documenting and identifying victims at Dachau. He also has pictures from the Americans of the horrors discovered at liberation. So much of the remaining evidence is classified, and he is an historian documenting Jewish incarceration in Drance here in Paris. It was a transit facility where tens of thousands of Jews were arrested by French police to be transferred to Auschwitz. You might find details about relatives. Allison Ingrid thanked the professor warmly for his time and sharing his knowledge. He was a special person, and Ingrid felt inadequate to express the measure of her appreciation. Within two weeks, Ingrid and Alice flew to Munich and borrowed a car to visit Dachau. Emil Bloom was in his seventies, slight and withered, but with a bright countenance. Are you were in the French resistance? Alice asked. I was, yes. Yet you live here? Only for the last three years. It's part of my research. You lived in Châteauroux? Uh, near Limoges. I came to Germany after my wife died. My son is an American. My daughter's married to a Swiss shop owner. I brought a list of family names, Ingrid said. Oh, well, come to the back room. They went into what had been a bedroom. A small table served as a desk with a straight-backed, armless factory-made chair. There was no place for Ingrid or Alice to sit. The man opened the top drawer of a chest-high four-drawer filing cabinet. Now read me your names one by one. With each name, he searched three or four places in different drawers. Twenty minutes later, he opened a folder from the middle drawer. Abraham Sternberg, he said, arrested as a Jew, a professor at the university. Was he French? He asked Ingrid. I'm sure that's him. I think he was Polish on my father's side. Incarcerated April 1942. Died of typhus November 12, 1944. Does that seem right? It's a common name, Emil said, showing her the entry. Do you see others? This is the only one, but I think it's one of the ones you're looking for. Can you tell me how it would have been for him? Are you visiting today? Yes. May I go with you, Emil asked. 
I can show you what I've learned. It's only recently Dachau has been open to the public for limited access. The camp has been under American control since liberation and changed little in these 18 years. It's my mission to have people sense what victims felt and endured. Uh, that would be very helpful, Monsieur, Ingrid said. Are records accessible, Alice asked. Many were destroyed as the liberators approached. Those that exist are not easily accessed. Official channels are useless. Material is often classified. By the Americans, why? There is photographic evidence of American soldiers executing prison guards on the Day of Liberation, and later, too. How do I find that evidence? Alice asked. With my fellow documentarians, we bribe, coerce, finagle, plead. Much of our information comes from talking with survivors. It, it, it takes time. It's so horrible, Alice said. You have my deepest sympathy. Thank you, Mademoiselle. But of course I tell you for the opportunity to tell the world what happened. So many Germans and collaborators deny the camps ever existed. Others claim they were exclusively used for incarceration of political activists. So much is unknown. They parked outside the Dachau camp. It's not uncommon for local citizens to refuse to answer when asked by visitors where they could find the camp, Emil said. Many declare no knowledge of the camp or its purpose. But the liberators were so appalled by the tolerance of Dachau citizens to what they found in the camp they forced them to bury thousands of the murdered. As they approached an entrance gate, Emil pointed to the words forged in iron. Arbeit mach frei, Emil said. Work makes one free. The camp opened in 1933. At first, prisoners were brought to work to build the camp, but then to work in private industry, and as the war expanded, forced to work in armament plants. Look, you can see the barracks. He directed them to move beyond an obstruction. Thirty-two barracks were built to house 200 or 250 occupants each. At the time of liberation, each barrack contained 1,600 to 2,000 prisoners. They walked toward the crematorium section. Is that what I think it is? Alice asked. She pointed to an eight-yard-long, waist-high mound of packed gray soot solidified over time. Human ashes, Emil confirmed. As they entered what looked like a building for showers, Emil said it was where euthanasia was conducted. It's amazing how the truth is obscured about these rooms. I found photographs of prisoners waiting to be disrobed for lice cleansing, then gassed. And let me show you what I've learned from objective visitors. Look at that sign, he said. Brospod. That means shower bath. That seems defensive irony to me, especially when there is no evidence of water pipes or shower heads. They walked through the rooms. Those vents were where the gas was introduced, Emil said. Vents on the walls and floors were obvious, and Emil led them outside into the hall and pointed to a metal blower and small box. This is undoubtedly where the cyanide pellets were vaporized. They're connected to the vents into the room. How can anyone doubt the evidence, Ingrid wondered. 
It has been repeatedly reported the prisoners were euthanized at another facility, denying the killings at Dhaka, typical of the confused distortion of the truth associated with this and other camps. They went into the crematorium. Two brick ovens, still covered with dark deposits, were positioned side by side. I have seen a photograph taken on the day after liberation where two survivors placed a corpse on a plank on track rollers to demonstrate the head-first insertion. Were they burned alive? Ingrid asked, her voice quavering. I don't believe so, as death from starvation and diseases became rampant and tens of thousands executed, the dead were cremated here. Alice took pictures. Before they left, Emil took them to a single railroad track with 30 railroad cars, many doors still open. On arrival, each of the cars had been packed with decomposing corpses of prisoners mixed with the near dead. As they continued over the grounds, Emil said, more than 3,600 unburied, many naked corpses in grotesque thrashes of death, some disembodied, were clumped into piles near the train. Near this area, on a camp dirt path, others lay alone in tortured, indignant positions on paths as they were trying to crawl to freedom. I've seen the classified photographs. Were the guards punished? Alice asked. There is no doubt. Some of the American soldiers executed guards. Some say no more than 50. Others believe that up to thousands of guards were killed. The truth will never be known. Ingrid, grieved by the extent of her distress, said to Alice, It's time to go, don't you think? Alice nodded. They thanked Emil, exchanged addresses, and returned to the airport. This is the end of episode one of Tour of Duty by William H. Coles. To continue, download episode two.